when we declare week after week the message of the cross, the impact of our Savior's death on our behalf, it gets personal when we say our, doesn't it? It was for me. He did that. It catches in my throat a little bit when I think of that. He did that for me. He did that for you. And what I share with you here from the pulpit uh, often goes into territory that's a little difficult, and I know this last couple of weeks have been, because of our theme. We're talking about King Manasseh, and the first part of his life was an absolute disaster when it comes to spiritual things. It's necessary to walk down this road because the title I've given to our study is The Fall and Rise of King Manasseh. In other words, there's something to look forward to, folks, but it won't be this week. It won't be this week. Last, uh, two weeks ago, I introduced you to the man, Manasseh, a king with great responsibility who led his people astray. He caused them to sin. That is a very heavy, accountable issue. Last week, we looked at the sin itself. The catalog was pretty ugly, wasn't it? We walked through the list of the things that Manasseh had done and what he had led the people into doing as well. Today, in Second Chronicles chapter 33 where we pick up our story again, we're going to talk about sin and consequences. This is also a very heavy theme. A very heavy theme. Most people would prefer that there were no consequences. We would prefer to think that uh, we get away with things in the territory of sin, that we can just march on through and if nobody around us knows it, well, that's pretty good. The scripture even defines sin as usually things done in secret or done in darkness. There are those in John chapter 3 who hate the light. They don't want the light to shine. It exposes their deeds because their deeds are evil. When we go through this passage today, I'm talking about King Manasseh and the consequences of sin in his life. And I don't doubt this whatsoever, that as we listen to it, we take stock of our own life, don't we? We can't help but do that. When you do character studies, you compare your character to that person, and you start to wonder and think, and sometimes it makes us think even more of our own relationship with the Lord. And that is not done accidentally here this morning, by the way, nor has it been for the last two weeks. Though I, I'm giving Manasseh our emphasis, because it's his life in black and white, and I'm not reading any of our lives in black and white, but you see your own heart. And as a pastor, I want nothing more than to know that you're walking with the Lord. And if this is something that wakes you up... <laughs> jars you a little bit to make you think, oh my, you know, am I really doing that? I want you to take it to heart, please. And examine your own relationship 
with the Lord. I'm not asking you today whether or not you're a believer or not a believer. That you should know by now. I hope so. We've talked about it quite a few times here at the pulpit. But the topic of sin and consequences is not just designed for the unbeliever. It's not just designed for the unbeliever. And so, today I think we could all stand here and look into this mirror together and have the Lord do His work in our hearts. So, now you're all excited about the passage, aren't you? Second Chronicles, chapter 33. I look at verse number 10. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore. That is an alarming therefore. And that's what's going to prompt the rest of our thoughts today. They would not listen. They paid no attention. Therefore. The Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Lord, we've got a, a challenging road before us today. And yet, we are in the presence of the Almighty God. We've talked about your holiness today. We've also talked about your mercy those are the songs that have been brought to our ears. And now we look at your word and we pray that it goes straight to our hearts. Help us to understand how serious you take the issue of sin and how wonderful is your solution to it. And we'll praise you, Lord, for this too. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 32. I've got several verses I'd like you to spot with me as we walk through here. Numbers is a long ways back. Even for Manasseh's day, we go back a long, long ways to the time when the book of Numbers was written. And in chapter 32, there's a simple little phrase that the Lord had said in verse number 23. Numbers 32:23 says this, and I'm going to get there eventually. Maybe you'll beat me there. Numbers 32:23. Right in the middle of a lot of things being said, it says this. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Now, there's a lot of context I know, but bring up this phrase. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Doesn't that just stop you cold right there? Your sin will find you out. Romans 6.23, a passage you probably know pretty well. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. That's what is owed for the work. The word wage in the, the Greek concept was a term they used for paying their military. That was the word they'd use here. 
the wage was the pay for a soldier's job. And I would think that even among those who, who at times were business owners who cheated their employees of their wages, I'm sure that's happened in history sometime, or the kings who might withhold money from their people in their reign or such like that, I would think that paying a soldier is a good thing to do. After all, he's got weapons. He's hired to do that job of protecting you and your nation. I think paying a soldier is a good idea. That's the term here, which is rather strengthened. It's not just a a casual phrase to say this. The wages, that means they're coming. They're not going to be withheld. They're earned, and they will be given. The wages of sin is death. Of all the disciplines of theology we can investigate, I would think that the consequence of sin is not among our favorites. We wouldn't quickly go there. We might prefer to study the sweet salvation that we have in Christ. I like that theme very much. We might prefer sermons on heaven, security, hope, forgiveness. I love those themes. Those are wonderful to speak about. The topic of sin and judgment and consequences are not desired. They're not in our top ten or maybe even the top two hundred of things we'd like to hear. I have on my book, on my shelf, a bunch of books. Uh, theological books, studies, pages after pages after pages of explanations and the theologies in the Bible. But I didn't bring any of those with me today, just my Bible. Because that's the book that we must know when it comes to sin. I don't bring you a thesis of my own on the consequence of sin. I bring you a character study of a man named Manasseh. He will serve as the illustration of the fact that God does see, God does act. Manasseh is a man who received the wages for his sins. Let's examine a few introductory passages just to understand what Pastor Bob is saying today. The fact that God sees is an awesome topic to discuss. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we have probably one of the ugliest verses in all of Scripture. God is describing the world as He looks down upon this world after Adam and Eve and their children and their children and their children and their children had populated this earth. God looked down upon that earth and He was sorry He had made it. That's quite a phrase coming from God. And these are the words that is recorded in Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw. He saw. He saw the wickedness of man. It was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
he could see not just the acts, but he knew what they were thinking, what they were planning, the reasoning behind their, their, their strategizing, and the fact that it was on their heart constantly. God saw that. It says in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse number 9, as David was talking to his son Solomon, who was about to take the throne, he says, As for you, my son Solomon knows the God of your father and served him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thought. He not only sees the action, but he sees the heart and he knows the intentions that go with it. That's his reference in there. In Psalm 69, verse 5, the writer says, O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. In Psalm 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. I think that's an intriguing phrase. You have placed our iniquities before you. I don't like thinking about it, personally, but the intrigue to me is that as he sits on his throne, it's like a display table is set up. And there they sit. The iniquities. That he may see them. Yuck. I don't like that theme, do you? Isaiah fifty nine twelve. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Even the writer here is standing before God and says, You, you know how much we've done this. And in Isaiah 66, verse 18, the Lord says, For I know their works, and their thoughts. I could go into many other passages in the Old Testament like that. Psalm 139 speaks of the fact that no matter where we go, He sees us. And not only that, but even before we speak words, He knows what we're going to say. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it speaks of a time when Jesus was conversing with the religious leaders. If you want to know somebody who had the advantage in the conversation, Jesus did. Because in that conversation it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, (laughs) said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Boy, would that stop your conversation in a hurry? If you could see what you were thinking. In Matthew 12, it does it again. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And he goes on with the dialogue. He knew exactly what they were thinking. And he addressed it. Hebrews 4.13 is perhaps a verse that will be crucial to our understanding today and as alarming as any passage could be. It says in Hebrews 4.13 there is no creature 
hidden from his sight. For all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Wow! What's the possibilities that we're going to hide something from him? like one of the children who walk up there with their something behind their back. They're acting like there's nothing behind their back. You're talking to them and say, what do you have? Nothing? I don't have anything behind. And you know full well they do. But they go about that. How many of us stand before God that way? We stand before him with something behind our back and uh, what's behind your back? Nothing? Everything is laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. We talk about the omniscience of God. When you go into that theology and go deep into it, it makes you feel like you want to crawl under a rock, but that's not going to do much good because He's also omnipresent. And He sees you there too. It's like, wow, these are pretty intense words. Now, why is the pastor doing this to us today? He's one of them too. That's what this verse is talking about. Because it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. None. He sees the heart. He sees the inner thinking place. He knows what we think. That secret place where no other man might be able to see, God sees. In Jeremiah 17 verse 9, he gives his assessment of the heart and he looks down upon that heart and he says the heart is more deceitful than anything else it is desperately sick or evil you might have or wicked you might have it says who can understand it now the fact is it's deceitful to ourselves it deceives us and that's why the question is raised who can understand it The very next verse, 17.10, answers that question. I, the Lord, search the heart. What man cannot do, God can do. What man cannot understand, God understands. Not only does he understand that deceitful heart and knows it to be desperately wicked, but it says he searches that heart, and I test the mind, and even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. Jesus said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, For it is written, out of your heart, of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts and the fornications and the thefts and the murders and adulteries. You find those in the Gospels. Jesus would say such things. Are you convinced that God sees? He sees rather deeply, doesn't he? He sees what we cannot see and what we try to hide. He can see all that. The thoughts, the intentions, the actions. He sees that. What about consequences? Here's a handful of verses for you. Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Isaiah 3, verse 11. Woe to the wicked, 
it will go badly for him, for what he deserves will be done to him. And then here's a rather pronounced section in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. There's enough farmers in this to know this, this room. If you go out and you plant wheat seed, do you have a crop of baloney? No. What do you expect? Wheat plants. That's true. That's true every time. It says so in this text too. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, Galatians 6, 8 says, will from the flesh reap corruption. Does that sound like a good harvest? But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I know that there's many who would say, but I'm hoping for good things with my life. I'm hoping to see great things. I, I hear a pastor speak. I have a Sunday school teacher teach. I read God's Word. And my heart is inclined to see those great blessings of spiritual fruit, that, that harvest that's pleasing to God. I want that. How many of us want that? We do desire that, right? If we spend our time sowing to the flesh, are we hoping that somewhere this accidentally changes and instead comes out good things? God says, spiritually, scientifically, it will never happen that way. You sow to the flesh, you reap to the flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you reap of the Spirit. You can't mix this and expect this to come out pure. These are heavy things. Consequences. There's one more for you. (laughs) James chapter 1. Verse 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's the progression. That's where the consequence goes. It brings forth death. All right. Let's talk about somebody else. His name's Manasseh. You feel a little more comfortable when we do this, I hope. Second Chronicles 33, verse number 9. Manasseh misled. What a terrible thing for a king to do. He misled Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do. To do what? To do more evil than all the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. He misled them to do that. And it says in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Do you see how merciful our Lord is even in that phrase in verse 10? He spoke to them about it. He wasn't quiet. 
He knew not only the sin, but he knew the consequence of it. He spoke to them about it. He spoke to them about it. He spoke to them about it. He sent his prophets to speak to him about it. They, they, they were there to tell him and to tell them what they were doing and where it was going. And they spoke and they spoke and they spoke and they spoke. And what's the phrase that follows that in that verse? They paid no attention. They paid no attention. In the days of Moses, just before Israel was going to enter the promised land, we're studying Joshua in the evenings here on Sunday nights. We'll do this again tonight. And this is our theme, part of it tonight too. They were about to enter into the land, and there was a promise given in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, used to be called the Palestinian Covenant, but theologians today change that term. <laughs> they call it the Land Covenant now because they take Palestinian out, obvious reasons in our world today, uh, misunderstood terminology. Uh, but as they're about to enter into the land of Israel, uh, God says, I'm going to give you a visual aid, so you will never forget what I mean by my law. And what I'm going to have you do when you go into the promised land, you're going into a territory... Later it's going to be called Shechem. It's not that far, but it's almost in the center of the promised land on the uh, west side of the Jordan River. It's almost dead center in all directions. But in that sense, he says, I'm going to take you into that territory. And you're going up to a set of mountains. There's a mountain called Mount Ebal, and there's a mountain called Mount Gerasim. And I'm going to have you go to those mountains. And I'm going to have you do something on that mountain that you will never forget. Now, this is what he says, and I'm going to read to you some from Deuteronomy. You could follow along if you'd like, or listen carefully if you will. But Deuteronomy 27 is where he starts. He says to the elders of Israel, uh, Moses is speaking, and he says to the elders of Israel and those who are in charge, said, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, so it will be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself two large stones. You're going to cut them with lime, and you're going to write on them the words of this law. I think that's kind of impressive. They're going to go into the promised land, get two large stones, coat it with lime, and then start sketching the words of the law on that stone. Do you think that would take a little time? You have ever written on stone before? They didn't have magic markers. Right? They're etching it in, and it takes time to put all those Hebrew letters in there. But they had to do that. He says, you're going to write all the words of the law and when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, the Lord your God your fathers, of your fathers promised you. And he said, well, was that the big deal? Go to the mountains, find big rocks, write on them? No. There's more than that. He says, when you get there, build an altar. They say, okay, we're going to build an altar. Then they're going to make it. But they're not allowed to use any iron tools to do it. They have to go and pick the certain size rocks and move them over and line them up like they should. But he says, you're going to offer sacrifices there. And they say, okay, is that what you want us to do? He says, no, not yet. Do those two things first. And then this is what I want you to do. I want you to take, on Mount Gerasim, I want you to take the tribe of Simeon, and the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Issachar, and the tribe of Joseph, that'd be Manasseh and Ephraim, and your tribe of Benjamin, and all of you go up on Mount Gerasim. Okay. 
And the rest of the tribes, the other six, Reuben and Gad and Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali, you go up on Mount Ebal. Okay? Now, I looked up a picture of this to see what it looked like. And today, if you go on Wikipedia, of course, and type in Mount Ebal, there's a picture there. What it looks like to stand on Mount Ebal and look down into a valley and up the other side, Mount Garrison's right there. Now, there's enough distance between them that a whole city lies between them. You can see the houses down below there. But you can stand on one mountain and you can look out over the other mountain. Half of Israel is on one mountain. Half of Israel is on the other mountain. Now, if that's just soldiers, we're talking about 300,000 people on either side. That's a lot of people. If we're talking about all the people, too, we're talking about about million on each side. But either way, they're to stand on either side. And the priests are to read to them the laws. The laws of curses and the laws of blessings. And when they yell out a blessing, one side's supposed to say, Amen! And when they yell out a curse, the other side says, Amen! And could you imagine what that looked like? Especially to the neighbors. Here are 300,000 or more men on one side yelling amen to every blessing that was declared from the middle of that valley. And every curse that was declared, the other side yelling out their amens to all the curses. And you know what? Who had the bigger job? People on the curse side. Because that list was twice as long. I'm not going to read you the whole passage if you want it. It's all the way to Deuteronomy 28 and into 29. It's a long passage. And it was not a five-minute service. To go through that, I think you would never forget such a thing, would you? If you heard it, you saw it, you visualized the whole thing, but if you were there and you were one of them, you would never forget that day. And that's what God told him to do. I never want you to forget the consequence of sin. And he talked about the consequence. And I've got page after page after page. I'm just flipping them under here. And you say, boy, he's almost done. But he read through all the consequences of these sins. And when he got to the very end, he says, And this, when you have not listened to me, and I've taken away your crops, and I've taken away your herds, and I've given you illness instead of health, and I've given you molds and mildews, and if I've given you floods, and I've given you famines, and I've done everything in my arsenal to get your attention, I will drive you out of that land if you do not pay attention to me. When Moses declared those words, he went on to preach a little sermon, and he says, and I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do that. That's pretty sad commentary, I think. But this is what it came down to, Moses in his appeal. He says in Deuteronomy 29, 27, 28, and 29, Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against this land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. What that came down to was Moses said, it's time for you to choose. 
And then later Joshua would say it too. It's time for you to choose. Today, who is your God? If you obey Him, He will bless you beyond words. If you disobey Him, He will bring every single one of these curses upon you. Now, honestly, folks, if you were standing there, which side would you have chosen? Given two options, hearing the, the consequence of either, wouldn't you say, Lord, bless me? Oh, bless me. He says, obey me. I'll bless you. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? It just sounds so easy. But God knew their future. He knew the reality of their choice. He knew King Manasseh was coming. For God knows even the future. And he knew when King Manasseh would reign, King Manasseh would deceive the people of Judah. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh. He spoke to him and his people. And he sent to them the priests. And he sent to them the law. And he sent to them the Levites. And they sent to them the prophets. And by then they'd had Hosea come through. And Joel come through. And Nathan or Nahum come through. And Habakkuk come through. And Isaiah come through. And Jeremiah was waiting in the wings. As well as Ezekiel and Daniel. And these great prophets. And there were good kings in the history. That were testimonies of blessings. One after the other after the other. And they'd seen the curses too, and they heard enough of it. Israel to the north, the northern kingdom, was gone by this point, because they would not listen. And if anything was a striking illustration, it was that. That God does, God does measure out his anger, and he casts them out of the land. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. But they paid no attention. One quote I read regarding this was interesting. This was a transformation of the culture from something generally God-honoring to a culture that glorified idolatry and immorality. In general, we can say this happened because the people wanted it to happen. They didn't care about the direction of their culture. I'd like to think that I pulled that off a newspaper clipping of the last week. Because it's still applicable, isn't it? But it's not. It's in an old dusty commentary. So that means people haven't changed a whole lot. They sin because they want to. Culture is in the direction it is. is because they want to. And yet I'm reading these words. God spoke to Manasseh and I'm seeing how merciful he was still knowing their hearts and the intents of those hearts. He's merciful and He's faithful to remind them and remind them and remind them because He's not willing that any should perish. But He's not hesitate, hesitant to bring them to death. Isn't that a striking picture? To the prophets, to the prophets in 2 Kings 21, the same story of Manasseh. This is what it says in verse 10 through 15. Now the Lord spoke to his servants and the prophets spoke to them saying this, Because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, 
having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him. And he has made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. God told the prophets that. Ezra records the fact in Second Chronicles 33, verse 11, that the Lord brought the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. The commentators all seem to agree the hooks was a hook through the nose and they put a chain on him and they walked that man all the way to Babylon if that were you (laughs) oh no this is a terrible question would you be as about as embarrassed as you possibly could be Here you are to be the king of this great group of people. And this enemy comes in and puts a hook in your nose, hooks it to a chain, and pulls you right through the town, out the door, down the street, through the villages, across your great land, across the river, down through the main street. There were a lot of highways out there. And they're walking you down the major highways of the streets, in order to take you all the way to Babylon, that's not a short walk. The whole time, how embarrassed would you be? If sin were to find us out, how embarrassed would we be? Wow. That's embarrassing just to think of it. Manasseh had hooks in his nose. He was driven like a wild bull. They took him to Babylon. You see, the progression of sin doesn't matter what sin I'm going to put in here. The progression of sin goes like this. They use the word idolatry in this little phrase. But you could put anything in there. First, idolatry is tolerated among God's people. Then, idolatry is promoted. Then, idolatry is supported and funded. Then, the true worship of God is undermined. And the worshippers of the true God are persecuted and murdered. And then the judgments of God soon come. Put any sin you want in there, and it's still true. And unfortunately, it's seen in our land today. There are sins tolerated. There are sins promoted. There are sins that are supported and funded. There are sins that undermine the worship of our God. There are sins that lead to persecution of God's people because of the nature of that sin. And the fact is, the judgment of God will come. It will come. Be sure 
your sin will find you out. Numbers 32 said, The wages of sin are sure. The wages of sin is death. You know what I'm so thankful for today? (laughs) I can't leave you there. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have given to us the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. He died on a cross to pay for our sin. And God knows what it is. And God knows what we thought. And God knows the intention of our hearts. And God sent His Son. And it was enough. It was more than enough. That He should pay the price for our sins. That He did that for me. It was for me He died. It was for you He died. Have you come to understand that apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost in your sins. There is no remedy apart from Jesus Christ. And that's why the appeal goes forth one more time from this pulpit, and that's simply this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the promise is of Scripture. Turn to Him today. He is the only Savior, folks. There are no substitutes. Only He can save us from our sins. And if we don't appeal to Him, we have no place else to go. So I talk to you as your pastor. I talk to you, if you've never accepted Christ as Savior today, today. Don't put it off another day. Don't put it off another minute. You could talk to Him right now. You could accept Christ as your Savior. You can know what it means to be forgiven right now. But I also talk to you as a believer. You have been set free from the consequence of that sin. Praise the Lord for that. But you have not been set free yet from the presence of that sin. And too often we find ourselves back there, don't we? We head back to it. We head back to it. You have been made dead to those sins, so why are you still playing with them? God has not changed his mind about sin. And the fact is that that's not where we belong as believers. That's where we start looking at the heart, right? The actions, the thoughts, the intent. That's where we make a close examination. Because I want us all to be right with God. I want us to be right with Him. And if you need to talk to Him about something today, do that. Don't put it off another minute. You said, but pastor, you're not done preaching. Okay, I'm done. Let's talk to the Lord right now. Alright? Heavenly Father, you see every heart in this room you know exactly what's in that heart you know the intents of that heart you know the thoughts of that heart you know the actions done those things have been made very abundantly clear to us but how much more clear to you who sees all things all things everything's laid bare before you Lord it's not that I'm preaching a sermon to scare people to death I'm just presenting what your word says about who you are and what you think of sin and how we even as believers toy with the very thing that Jesus Christ died for that's alarming that's concerning that we should dabble in the very thing that you find detestable that we should do the things that displease you 
Lord, there might be some among us who need Christ as Savior. And right now, may the Holy Spirit capture that heart. Draw them to yourself and do what only you can do. Save that individual. Help them to see for the first time and understand their need of Christ. Show them the Savior that they may trust Him and receive eternal life. Lord, for the believers among us today, those who might be dealing with things they shouldn't, you know, Lord, who they are. And again, your Holy Spirit is at work, and I pray that conviction might also be part of the correction that you bring them back to where they should be. And may we not be so quick to point the fingers, but turn to you, humbly ask, Lord, where we stand with you, but also humbly be willing to step forward and help a brother or sister in need. Lord, there's so much to this topic, so much to it. But when we stand before your throne, we want to stand blameless. We want to stand in the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to be seen as pure and clean and holy. And it's only because of him that we possibly could. But may our actions match our calling. For you have made us thus. May we become that in actions too. Lord, do your work in our midst, for we need it. Desperately need it. And if you start a revival in this land, start it right here in this room, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.